this is Rachel Lin, and you are listening to Upstage Left. In this episode, I speak with actor Matthew Mayer, who was most recently seen in Will Eno's Gannett at Theatre for a New Audience. Unfortunately, that show closed after only four previews, which we talk a little bit about in this episode. Before knowing who he was, I kept on seeing Matt on stage, on Broadway, off-Broadway, and off-off in plays like Mr. Burns, Chinglish, and The Flick. And I kept thinking, who is that guy? And I guess a lot of other people must have felt the same way because he's the kind of actor playwrights write roles for. He's slated to join the cast of New York Theatre Workshop's Three Sisters, directed by Sam Gold, whenever that happens. This is one of the first interviews I did via Zoom, and you might be able to tell. Like everyone, I'm getting used to communicating digitally and not being in the same space as my guests, but hopefully it's not too distracting. Like you, I am really missing the theater right now, but I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak with people I admire and share it with you. So thanks so much for listening. I hope you're staying safe and healthy and finding ways to pass the time. Here is Matthew Mayer. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How's it going? It's going good, going good. Uh, enjoying my quarantine uh, with my family. You know, it's a little being an actor under quarantine. I like to say it's like leaving a walkathon. Like, when are you in the walkathon and when are you like walking home? And like, <laughs> when is it just like a slow week in my life that I'm just like sitting around? home with like my kid and my wife uh, because I'm unemployed and when it's like a, a global pandemic. Um, but the, uh, you know, a, a global pandemic thing is, is, is starting to enroach. <laughs> wow. That's an amazing metaphor. I've never yeah. thought of it like that it's, before. <laughs> I stole it. I stole it from Maria Gizia actually, um, who used the metaphor as a metaphor for leaving acting. Like she, you know, when you ever think about leaving acting, like it's hard to just like leave acting because you, there's no one you can just march into the office and yell, I quit, you know, <laughs> like, like there's nothing you can do. You can just like stop trying and then very slowly, that's not on the menu right now for me anyway. That's good. That's good. <sighs> Um, it closed or did it close early because of this? It did, yeah, it did. We 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 only did uh, four performances. What you only did four, including previews? I mean, uh, yeah, that's it. We just literally performed it four times. Wow, I feel so I, lucky that I got to see one of the four performances. I know. I think yeah, you're. It's like under seven hundred people like saw it uh, before before we closed. Are there plans to do it again? You know, uh, there are hopes to do it again, but I think Theater for a New Audience, where who produced it, um, Tifana uh, produced it, and they are like all, every other off-Broadway or theater, maybe in the world, where it's like they don't even know their plans, but at, every day things get like more unclear as, as to when anything can really happen. You know, I'm supposed to... Uh, being the three sisters uh, New York at a workshop after this right we were supposed to start rehearsing April 14th and that's been pushed back and it's really unclear and and then pretty soon it starts like interfering with the schedule of like next season and so it's it's really no one knows how how they're going to deal with it I was talking with a friend actually and one thing that might happen, he was saying is that like, I mean, he's not an artistic director either, but he was saying like, maybe artistic directors will have to like cancel so much or clear so much space that they will finally have time to really think about like what they really, really want to do aside from what they like promised to do or what they're like on the hook to do. Like, like the break might be so big that any theaters that survive, I think we'll have to really think about like what is the work that they really, really is really important to them and just like do that. I mean, I'm sure all the theaters are doing the work that's important to them, but I mean, these plays like 
uh, you know, the Celine song uh, play. There are lots Endlings. of plays that were endless, yeah. And other plays, there are lots of plays that were going on that were canceled before they're, they were done. And like, they're not going to come back, you know? Like, yeah. they're not going to like, mounting a play is such a massive enterprise. Like, I could see Tifana pushing for Gannett just because our show, our run was so short. Yeah. But like, they have to build the set. They have to do all this crap and then get everybody available. Doing that all over again for something that's already happened, you know, it's it's really hard to tell. I mean, putting on a play, especially, is such like a, it feels like such a, like, um, a risky maneuver to begin with. To, like, go right. back at something's been canceled, to go back and do it again, I, it seems... I, I mean, I'm glad that I'm not, I don't have to make those decisions. Yeah. 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 It's going to be a, like a wild west when, we, when yeah, everything starts be, running again. It's going to be totally wild west. And it's going to be really hard because I imagine, I don't know, but a lot of people are going to be, a lot of theaters are going to close, I imagine, unless they, they, could, they have ways to like contract their spending and just like, going to a little shell, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of, like, theater artists who were living um, paycheck to paycheck, who were just, like, barely holding on, are not going to, you know, they might have to leave the business or they might have to leave the city, you know. And so the landscape, depending on how long this goes on, this the landscape might be totally different, you know. Yeah. Which would be terrible. But hopefully, hopefully they can figure something out. How to, how to, the government can figure something out, or the theaters can figure something out. A way of like um, keeping keeping the whole thing afloat. You know? Yeah. Bail out. Bail out. Bail out. Bail out. <laughs> Bail out. <laughs> Bail out. <laughs> um, let's talk about something more positive. Let's go. To yeah. The, sorry. Go to yeah. 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 Sorry to get it off. Right. Yeah. I guess. No, it's uh, good. Yeah, I'm so glad. Address. Yeah. We need to acknowledge uh, the state of the world that we're in at this moment. That's right. Where are you from originally? I'm from Cambridge, Massachusetts originally. And then I went to college at um, UC Santa Cruz, weirdly, which is where I went just to kind of get away from Massachusetts. And then uh, I spent a year in Chicago, which at that time, which was the early 90s, I don't know if it's still this way, was had a reputation for being a place where it was like really easy to get a theater career going because there was tons of non-equity theater. Oh. So you could just like, it was just easy to like plug into the scene there. And it was, that was true. Uh, but then after a year, I moved here. Did you study acting at UC Santa Cruz? I did, yeah. I did, mm. I did. I did. I did acting in high school too. We In high school, we had like a very vibrant uh, drama department, you know, uh, so I sort of discovered it there as a way, mostly as a, like a social thing, as a, mm-hmm. like, you know, my theater department was like cool, you know, they had like cool people and they had like parties and they would put on a play and it was very romantic and fun and, you know, cute girls and, and cool guys. And it was a way to, just a way for me to just like engage socially in ways because it was hard for me before that so it's it started then for me and it always has been since like a a social activity Mm. you know like it doesn't exist doing plays doesn't exist in some pure vacuum for me you know I didn't really start to really approach acting as like this like art form that you could really think about and explore until I was in college. You know, I wasn't like a serious actor in high school at all. It was just like a fun thing to do. And that's what it still is. You know, mostly it's like a fun way for people to get together and do something really crazy and fun. Yeah. Did you like the acting program at uh, UC Santa Cruz? Yeah. Uh, I did. I mean, I was a literature major. Like, their acting program was not, like, renowned. But they had some, uh, they actually had some really good directors there and some really good Meisner acting teachers. Marsha Taylor, Greg, older director who's not with us anymore, named Andy Doe, who worked with Sam Shepard. 
And they were really, um, it was very like rigorous San- Sanford Meisner repetition exercise work, you know, it was very like yeah. messy. And so it was really fun. So I got, I sort of got into that at that, at an age in college where it, it was sort of newly appealing to sort of like delve into your emotions and be more of like a serious artist, you know? Mm. And then when you were in Chicago, you left after a year because... My girl, I had my girlfriend at the time lived here. And also, like, my, um, I developed this romance of being an actor, partially, I think, under the influence of my girlfriend at the time, who was, who was um, studying performance studies at NYU. But mm-hmm. I wanted to sort of do, like, kind of cool... My model, my models at the time were Willem Dafoe and John Malkovich, Mm. you know, uh, or my idea of them, which was like actors with sort of like big personality who did really, in my mind, really edgy theater work, but also like starred in movies and got nominated for Oscars. Like they were able to like do both things, you know, like somehow their careers, like in my young mind, uh, encapsulated like a total fantasy. Like you could be edgy and cool and do like, a show at the, you know, work with a Wooster group and get really involved in like a kind of a, like a very avant-garde, involved in a very uh, like avant-garde committed artistic scene, but also get to do like Spider-Man or, you know, get to like exhibit your flamboyant style. They, they both have still and had back then to me like this really engaging flamboyant acting style that was both like totally like broad but also super rigorous in a way um and I just made the connection that they were like that because they did a lot of sort of downtown edgy theater Mm. but also were able to um bridge the gap and like do movies somehow And, and that was sort of the career I emulated. And later on, like Philip Seymour Hoffman was, Philip Seymour Hoffman is like the, um, the top, holy the, grail. the holy grail of like that sort of idea of someone who's like, who sort of somehow bridges the gap between like a deep sort of rigorous commitment into like the art of acting. Yeah. But he's also able to like do all sorts of things. And it's sort of in some weird way, sort of paradoxically like flip the switch like it's so themselves in a way that they are able to inhabit deeply all sorts of different mediums or writers or like it's sort of able to do anything for a long time I felt like for a while or when I first starting out I was like you you want to be a chameleon you know like that was like the idea of like somebody like Daniel Day-Lewis or something who who like totally transforms, but I didn't, I never felt like that was really possible for me. Um, just like the way I look and talk, it's just, it's not available. I mean, I think that's the other thing that brought me to New York is that someone like me, I, I felt like New York offered some pathway to be a, being able to work a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Just like downtown theater in New York would, accept me and then through doing downtown theater work which i um i would be able to like find a place in like new york as a whole and which is basically how it worked out or but it's so it happened yeah it did happen that's (laughs) that's how it it, it happened yeah yeah that's basically that it was sort of calculated on my part like assessing who i was and how I was seen and how I was cast, but also like my romantic vision of what like being an actor would be. Yeah. Like why would one would even be an actor, which is to like hang out with cool edgy people and do like crazy fun plays and also be famous. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like both yeah. these, like somehow all these things together while, while um, sort of pursuing emotional truth you know trying to have it all in some ways describing it i sound i feel like i sound like a total jerk but these were all the things this is the these are the ideas that could have brought me to new york you know these ideas got more complicated 
in my mind as I lived in New York and was working as an actor. But that was the fantasy when I was like 24. When you just said like, you know, when I looked at myself and what I was being cast in, did people tell you where you fit kind of? Or did you have an idea for yourself already? Right. I mean, I guess like, I, you know, I have a like a cleft palate and a cleft lip and I, I talk with a lisp and I have, uh, I just, I don't really know what my presence is like, but everyone says it's like very quirky. Everyone, like I got a lot of good feedback in college, um, not so much in high school, uh, weirdly. I mean, I got along really well with my high school drama teacher, but and I, I, whatever, I did well in high school, but I, I didn't feel like I was a good actor in high school. And I felt like other people were really good actors in high school and I was not. Um, but in college and, and uh, it started in college and, and beyond, I got a lot, I was always told that I was really good. I was always encouraged, like, you're really good but you're going to have a really hard time being cast. Like, mm. but like you need to work on your lisp and you need to accept that like you're just not all doors are going to open for you, but everyone can see that you're really great. But this is, this is the world in which you live. You, this is the world in which you're entering, which mm. is like, I mean, I have one, uh, one teacher of mine, Danny Shea, who's a great actor, um, and another teacher, uh, Jack Zerby, uh, another great teacher, great actor, So lay it out, which is like, you can't just do whatever you want. Like, casting somebody with like a cleft palate in a role, that's a choice. That's a creative choice that the director is going to make. Mm-hmm. And they'll, you know, you're good enough that uh, I probably enough directors or writers will want to make that choice. But that is what, that is the, they, they have to be willing to do that. And I think in my experience that once I work with a director or writer once or twice and we get along, that stops being a factor mm-hmm. um you know i think like people stop noticing it and the more stuff i do overall just like in the world i feel like the less and less the way i look that that aspect of it the less the less of a factor that is like i do feel like more and more parts are available to me the older i get and the more i work mm-hmm. but at the beginning what is the thing that like uh, distinguishes me from the other million people who are like starting out and don't have a resume and don't, you know, who, who, who the fuck is this guy? That is one thing that distinguishes me. And so that was very limiting, I think, uh, early on, but it was also kind of liberating too. Like it was memorable. And in, again, in like a, in a downtown environment, where everybody's different and everybody's kind of like uh, people aren't trying to as much um, hide their differences. It was sort of easier to sort of get in. And then once more and more people saw me act in that environment, it became easier to sort of break into other, uh, you know, break into other theater companies, other scenes, other casting director offices. But it took a long time. I mean, I'm 48. You know, so I've been here for 25 years and it's, and I am happy with my career, but it's taken like a long time. You know, I do see it as like, I've gotten some really good breaks, but overall, it's just been like a long, slow climb, Mm. you know, to wherever, wherever it is I am now. It's been slow. There's been no moment where I was suddenly like, rocketed to fame like in some way even the flick which was um a huge job and a a huge success and did change my life there was no it wasn't like where when like john malkovich was in true west and like suddenly became a movie star it's like ah, i'm kind of rambling i lost my train of thought but it, it, it it's been slow it's sort of slow i see my career 
and the career of a lot of people, most careers probably, as being sort of a long, slow development process. Right. Yeah, I was just watching earlier today some clips from the Race of the Arc tattoo. Do you want to know before in 1999? Yeah, that was the first. Um, that was the first uh, thing. It wasn't the first thing I did in New York, but it was. It was a break. It was a big moment in my career and in my creative development. Melanie Joseph had a few years before founded the Foundry Theater, which specializes in sort of um, in sort of reinventing what theater is. Um, they just folded, actually, uh, or they didn't fold, but they yeah they folded. They Melanie published a great book called like A Moment on the Clock of the World, which she sees as itself a theatrical event in a way, but it, it's a book. Anyway, back in the mid-90s, she had seen me in a couple of small plays, and my girlfriend at the time was working for her, and she, we were introduced. You might want to talk all this because this is so boring, but I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to remember. Um, the, the Race of the Architecture was a one-person show written by David Hancock, and the way it was designed was... You went in and you were went into this sort of flea market overseen by this sort of like young guy who would then run you through a presentation of all the items in the flea market mm-hmm. uh, and talk about all the objects in the flea market, which happen to be objects that are, you know, very close to my heart, my, my character's heart. Uh, they were left to me by my foster father who you know, who used to run this flea market. And so you get sort of woven into this sort of story. Mm-hmm. And I would have each member of the audience, like pick an object. And then I would tell them a story about the object. And basically what would happen is gradually I would become inhabited by the ghost of my foster father. Mm-hmm. And it would become like a debate over what the object meant. And gradually you would realize you were inside this sort of like mental and emotional landscape of like a profoundly sad and confused person. Mm. Like gradually you would realize you were inside a play and the play, the scene partners were me and the audience. And it was really, really fucking hard. It was so difficult because really like the play would proceed in a different order every night. It was basically Mm. like whatever objects they chose, that's the monologue I would do. Yeah. Um, but it would be, if they, if they chose that object first, then that monologue would be like a sort of, um, exposition almost, you mm. know, me just talking. But if that my object came last, that would be like a devastating realization of what's happening. And all the speeches could kind of work in that way. Right. It's hard to describe how you'd have to read the play. The play is amazing, but the play works in these shuffled combinations but I would have to emotionally improvise my line, my delivery of every single monologue. Like I could never settle on any delivery. Like anything would happen. I would have to respond in the moment of like the emotional journey that I'm going through, but the text would never, could never reliably match up to that journey, except for the very beginning, very end. So it was so, so hard. And it changed my life actually, because even though it was very avant-garde in a way as a play, it required like actually total method acting, like what method acting, like such that I hadn't really even gotten into. Like you have to be like fully in the moment, fully know your intentions and like your character. Like you couldn't, it was completely naturalistic because you couldn't let on that you were acting, any kind of acting, any kind of like overt acting would ruin it. And it solidified for me something that has gone, stayed with me, is that your relationship to the audience is major. It's like kind of everything, you know, that Mm. the the first conversation that you're having is with the people who who are watching you do this thing. And yeah, it it was an amazing experience, actually. And I did it for... We toured it a bit. It it was the sort of the main event of my working life from like 1998 to like 2001. Wow. And I did other things around that, but that was like the thing that I was doing. And that sort of made my reputation 
up to that point. How did you get that job? Melanie just, like I say, uh, Melanie met me through my girlfriend at the time, who was her associate producer. And she saw me in a play, one play. I think it was it appealed to her that I was young and not well-known mm-hmm. and hungry and interested in what she was trying to do. Mm-hmm. I had seen her previous production with the same playwright, and I was really into it. And I think that, like, at that time in my life, I was willing to submit so completely to her vision and to Mm. the vision of a playwright. And that's another thing that I learned then, which is that if you can put yourself in that place of submission to, as an actor, particularly in theater, if you, it's always, I've always done my best work when I trust the director and the writer completely mm-hmm. and just like submit to it. If you, I found that like, if you, and we talked about this in the, in the class that you took, that if, if you can find out what a, uh, what the writer and the director are really trying to do and you do it as, as deeply as you can for them and get out of the way of that as much as you possibly can, then paradoxically all of their choices become your choices and like Mm. when the moment comes for the show to be yours you take it over completely and it becomes you or I in my experience I become more I feel more in control once I've absorbed everything and the thing works if it works and I take it all on then the, the feeling of control and like self-actualization or whatever is huge. But it mm-hmm. takes like going through that period of time of like not just learning your lines and the blocking and all that stuff, but really like deeply understanding what it is they are going for mm-hmm. and absorbing that and like being the person who is going to do the thing that they are going for, which includes like tone and vibe and humor and rhythm and all that hmm. yeah that uh, that is something I learned doing that show wow wow did did you have to audition or she was just like hey you can do it yeah she was just like, yeah no audition she was just like you got it That's and I was amazing. like wow Jesus it was so <laughs> and it was exactly what I thought it was going to be like I had a I had like a fantasy of like winning an OB. I mean I had just moved to the city a couple of years ago and so and I saw all these cool downtown people like David Greenspan or whatever winning Obies and I was like I want to do that I want to do that and when this came along I was like this is this is that thing wow. that is going you know introduce me to that world or give me that sort of recognition and provide me with that sort of creative experience that I I, I was looking for and yeah, it sort of fell into my lap. I mean, that's also happened before. The Flick, uh, Mr. Burns, a lot, you know, a lot of my relationships with writers and directors who that have meant a lot to me, Ethan Lipton, did not come through auditions, but just come from like being friends and and sort of just stepping into their work. That's amazing. And so when you landed in New York, did you have these relationships already? How did you find these people to build your network? Oh my God, it was a nightmare. I mean, <laughs> well, my girl, like I say, my girlfriend introduced me to Melanie. So are you still friends with this ex-girlfriend? I am. Oh. I am actually. She was a big, yeah, she, we've long since we broke up, you know, within nine months of my moving there, but we, um, we stayed friends. I mean, it's been a long time, so we weren't, we haven't been that so in touch in the past, like, you know, 15, 20 years. But at that time, she was, yeah, she introduced me to Melanie Joseph. And that Melanie was the big, was the big figure of, of my, you know, through her, I, I met a lot of the people who, who I would know in that time. But, you know, before that, I would go, I don't know if they still have Backstage Magazine now. Yeah. They do. I would buy backstage every week and I would 
circle things and I would send my headshot resume around. It was by doing that I met, I got involved with um, a long dead theater space called Toto Kanada on Ludlow Street hmm. run by Aaron Bell who used to do crazy plays and he would put on like Shakespeare plays and he introduced me to Kirk Bromley who was a verse playwright, still is, still working, he's still around and Kirk and I and a few other of his favorite actors, we made a theater company called Inverse Theater that would perform Kirk's plays. These sort of like really long riffs on Shakespeare, these really sort of funny and inventive sort of epic plays that were like four hours long. Wow. And people either loved or hated. And it was really fun to do. So that was through like backstage magazines. I mean, that's what I would do. For years, oh God, for years, I would just go through backstage and I would go through like the casting director. There was like a, a Ross reports. Do they still have Ross reports where know. it would go like a listing <laughs> of all the casting directors and I would just do like massive mailings wow. to all casting directors. And that's, that's how I did it for years. So much postage. And uh, <laughs> it was through, but. The Racy Art Tattoo was at PS122, and it got a really good review in the New York Times. And as a result of that, I got cast in Bringing Out the Dead, which is a Martin Scorsese movie, which was the first wow. um, big movie that I did. It was like one scene, but it was a, it was a big deal. And then I did a, like a small film. It was directed by a friend of Kevin Smith, but it was this really crazy, weird movie called Vulgar. And I got back through backstage and through them, I met Kevin Smith, who was a, a really big deal. With it. I mean, he's still famous, but he was in the mid late nineties. He was like a huge deal. And he cast me in dogma because of that. And so it just sort of all, it just slowly started to piece itself together. And then right after Race the Art Tattoo and right after the Obi, weirdly, totally dead. Like I didn't work for a year. It was like nothing. Because an OBs are great, but they don't do anything for your career. It's just, it's this beautiful thing to get, mm-hmm. but it didn't actually like help me to get work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then somehow I got cast in The World Over by Keith Bunin at Playwrights Horizons. And that was my um, off-Broadway debut. Wow. That's amazing. Then right, right around then, I, uh, I'm, I threw Michael Friedman, um, the late great Michael Friedman, who was the musical director of a, mus- a musical by Maria Irene Fornice called Molly's Dream, which I did at Soho Rep with Daniel Aachen. Through then, I joined the Civilians, um, the theater company Civilians. And mm. Civilians and Club Thumb are the two sort of off-off Broadway theater companies that I've done sort of the most work with since mm. then. So in those times when you like didn't have work the year after Race of the Arc Tattoo, what what did you do to get yourself through those times? For a long time, I had a day job. I was an office manager at like a graphic design studio in the West Village, which was, oh God, it was, uh, it was really hard to not do that uh, when I finally quit because it was fun to have a place to go. And a lot of the stuff I was doing back then, like rehearsed at night because it was like off off Broadway and nobody was making any money. And it was, it was fun to have a, like a regular job. And then during that tough time, I, uh, I was a teaching artist, you know, for a bit. That was hard. I was not good at that, <laughs> you know, but gradually. And then I would get like a TV job here or there, you know, again, mm-hmm. Often it's like a crazy person, somebody mentally hand- handicapped or like totally insane. I went to high school with Ben Affleck uh-huh. and Matt and Casey and Ben cast me in Gone Baby Gone. So like film TV stuff would sort of trickle in hmm. in various sources. And then, Did you uh, have like a mental thing you would say to yourself? Were you a positive outlook person or were you too- I was a positive outlook person, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, a very positive outlook person. I was always, and I'm still this way, I, almost to my detriment, but I'm always like, yeah, it's going to happen. It's always going to happen. You know, I, I do always think like, 
during a lower moment. I'm, I, I mean, I had a very low moment in my mid-30s where I realized, like, at that time, in my opinion, and I won't be specific, but I really didn't feel like there was very, many, very much good theater in New York at that time. There was a time, I'll, I'll, con- I'll contextualize it this way. There was a time in like 2010, 2011, mm-hmm. when, when I really felt like shit really started to blow up in New York in a really exciting way. It's like playwrights and directors like Annie Baker, Melissa James Gibson, Brandon Jacob Jenkins, like all of these people were having their off-Broadway debuts. And it was all like amazing work. Like those, those are just three. It was like tons of people like uh, you know, Dan LaFranc, and Washburn. Like they were all starting to bubble up and like be produced at like Playwrights Horizons. Playwrights Horizons was crushing it back then. They were, they were doing like amazing stuff. Yeah. The Vineyard Theater, the public, all these places were like really producing this like next generation of like exciting playwrights. And they were generally all coming from downtown. And that was a very exciting time to be in New York. Yeah. Before that, I think it was really, really boring. I just thought like everything, it was just like a lot of plays that really wished that they were TV shows. Hmm. And I didn't like any of them. And I didn't see a place for myself in them. Like I hated them and wanted to be in them. Like. to be in that club but also felt like angry and excluded so I went to LA and I wasn't making enough money and I didn't wasn't doing enough film and tv so I went to LA and like did my darndest to like try and break in there yeah uh, for like almost a year and I didn't work for that year and that was like so annoying and stressful and then when I came back from that I just resolved to like work with my friends, just to stop worrying about being like famous and like uber successful, but just like just do, you know, downtown work with my friends, do stuff that's interesting and try and like cut out the noise, but just like go towards working with people that I like to be around. And the first project that I did after I made that resolution was an Anne-Marie Healy show with uh, 13P with Annie Kaufman. Um, have you seen Steve Steven? And, um, or no, it was right before that. I did the Pillow Man with Les Waters and Berkeley Rep. Oh, wow. So ever since around then, 2008 on, I felt pretty comfortable with, 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 like my, <laughs> with my, with my life choices. You know what I mean? Other stuff started, I just sort of had a return to center, you know, and I stopped. Uh, I just resolved to just like do what I wanted to do and hope that other stuff would sort of come from that. And, um, and that's, that's been the case. That's amazing. I'm just thinking about the class that you taught. So I took a class with you a few, like over five years ago now called working on new plays. Yeah. Is there anything in your process, but you also work on old plays. I mean, you, did the adaptation of Uncle Vanya and you were about to do the three sisters. Um, yeah. Is there anything in your process that you always come back to again and again, whenever you're approaching a script? Yes. I mean, not consciously like with Uncle Vanya and with three sisters, you know, that is very much, both those projects are very much related to my relationship with Sam Gold. Um, and Annie Baker, you know, Annie Baker did the Va- Uncle Vanya uh, adaptation. So that really felt actually like working on an Annie Baker play with Sam in a way. It, it, it was the, the, the beginning of my relationship with them. Yeah, my goal is always, it's like twofold. It's like I want to um, really understand what the play is trying to do. You know, what could what could play, what the emotional, what the landscape, what the stylistic, what the theatrical landscape of the play is. And I really want to get to know the people that I'm working with hmm. and know what their deal is and fully like explore my relationship. Because like everything you do is defined by the people that you do it with. Like you 
uh, I find. And that's what makes theater so great. Like, you can't just like go, you know, squirrel away and like do your perfect Baron Chusenbach in three systems. Like, it's the, my whole interpretation of that play whenever we do it will be sort of based on like all the other people doing it and Sam's ideas and the design and Uncle Vanya too. Like I do feel like I did, I'm, I've been in Uncle Vanya and I know what Uncle Vanya by Chekhov is, but that experience is like completely defined by that room, that group of people, that time in my life, that time in theater history, it's not, it's rare that I, it's rare that I take something because of the role. You know, I, I think that's partially because I don't usually have an opportunity to like choose roles. I and mean, somebody recently was like, you should make a list of all the roles that you want to play. And I was like, oh God, I mean, I did actually kind of make a list, but like, it's, not really it's more of a list of like who I want to work with mm. than list of roles I want to play actually I mean there is a list of roles I'd want to play but it took thinking but like when I was doing the flick or Mr. Burns and um I had a new manager someone suggested like oh you should make a list of all the people who you want to come see the show who you would like to work with and the list was like really long and I came up with it in like five minutes I was like all these people you know because all those people were like created worlds that like I could really see myself in Mm. if that makes sense yeah like when I first saw the aliens Annie Baker's the aliens that Sam directed I was like yeah 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 I want to be in that I want to be inside whatever they are doing and it wasn't like oh, I want to play that part necessarily. I mean, there was no part for me in that play, but I was like, that, I want to be in that shit. That's, that's, that, that's up there. That's what I want, you know? Yeah. Did that always feel attainable to you to just like picture yourself in those worlds and then go after? I mean, it was attainable that time. I mean, but I didn't know. Annie Baker was already writing the flick with me in mind when I went to see the alien. Oh, wow. Um, which I didn't know. It was just luck. But sometimes. So, I mean, that was an example of like where I imagined myself in something and then I was. And that was like amazing, you know? And I guess I want to say like, it's like that platitude, like, you know, picture what you really want, like make a dream board and it will happen. And I don't necessarily think that that's true, actually. I don't necessarily believe in that. But I do think that if you really want something and it's a specific want, you should, you know, ask for it from the people that have it. Yeah. But Will, like I had a lot of experience with Will, you know, seeing Will's work and also doing like readings of his plays. And so in choosing to do Gannett, I was like, well... I really want to be in one of those plays. Hmm. And the part is like really, I, you know, actually that part was really difficult. And, and so that was an appeal, but also it was Will, it was Will's work. It wasn't like the part's like not that big. It's not, you know, it was a major challenge, but it wasn't, it was more like, I want to work on a Will, you know, play. I want to discover what it takes to understand and deliver what will will is doing Mm. and for folks who don't know the part is called town and you played multiple people within yeah it was like a joke that it was really hard i actually like um (laughs) i i had an experience i've had a long experience with that part basically what it is is you know it's an adaptation of pure gint and instead of writing a whole town like the town people say like oh the town is like a character he just had one person one character come on and say like Sometimes I feel like I'm a whole town and then all the voices of the town, like he would just say all the things that the different people in the town were saying, but he would just say them and I would just say them in my voice and I'm just saying this and hey, can I have some coffee? Oh, give me that coffee. You know, uh, 
I was sort of channeling an entire town full of people and really difficult to do, actually, really hard. I, years ago, many years ago, I had been up all night shooting a movie and I woke up the next morning or the next afternoon to a call from Will that they had just lost somebody for the reading for this like table read of Gannett and could I come in and read town? So I showed up knowing nothing just with like a cup of coffee and like a muffin at like two in the afternoon. And he was like, this is the part, you know, this is not one person, but you're playing as one person, but it's actually a whole town. And it was a different director. Actually, Sam Gold was directing the reading who did not direct Oliver Butler directed the production. It was just canceled. But, um, Anyway, so it was a long time ago, it was like 2010, and uh, I crushed it. It was like amazing. Like, <laughs> it, I was so good. I mean, I was so good. I like nailed it. It was like the funniest thing that I had ever done. It was like my best work. And then um, the years pass, and um, uh, you know, they do the play in Louisville. Danny Wallahan does it. He's, I, he's, he's amazing. Everyone says he's amazing in it. And I'm like, oh, well, of course he's amazing, you know. He's an amazing actor, but also that part is so, so funny. And then I guess a workshop happened, and Danny was not available, so they got me. And I was like, oh, great. This will be, like, the easiest thing I've ever done. I'll just breeze in there and just, like, you know, show my genius. And it was awful. And, like, every other reading I did after that, like, it was just so, so hard to do right. And I was just so in my head and I was like, why is this so difficult? I'm just, I'm losing my mind and I'm like a terrible actor. And just always I would pull it together just in time for the reading. And I felt that way with, with this process too. Like, I was like, I'd have worked on this character so much, but I still have no idea what I'm doing. What would you do to kind of get into the character or like find your way into it? I hadn't really figured it out before we got canceled. What I discovered is that any bit of, and I discovered, I sort of discover this all the time uh, in everything that I, that I do, that every time I want to make like an acting choice, it's wrong. You know, I discovered it in Race to the Architect too. I discovered it in the flick. It often comes up in Anne's work. It comes up all the time that every time, like I have an idea about like an acting choice, you know, like, Oh, this guy wants this or, this is what I'm thinking. I'm going to show the audience like, you know, what I think a character wants by like with this acting choice, it ruins it. No one wants to see your acting choices. Like no one <laughs> want to hear the play. And the most, if you can just like do the play, then that's your acting. And actually that's a lot of acting. And um, that was the case for town, probably the most of any part I've ever worked on where, I, I just had to like radically keep every, every day Will and Oliver would be like, you know, it's just great when you just say the lines, <laughs> just say the lines. And I even, I went, I went up to Danny Wallahan, who's a friend of mine. And I was like, so it worked. Did, how did it work? Did it work? And he was like, honestly, easiest job I've ever had. I just stood there and said the words and like people would laugh, like the laughter would just come rolling at me. And I was like, Jesus Christ, okay, I guess. <laughs> but every time I would try to make it funny, no laugh. Every time I would try and put like a comic spin on anything, no laugh. But if I just sat there, stood there and talked and said the lines exactly the way they were written and just said them with a certain amount of honesty, which is what Will is asking for every day, um, then it would work. But it was like really hard. And it's, it's exactly what we are teaching uh, uh, in that class, uh, which is to like just be yourself, try to find a way to like figure out what the playwright wants and then just be yourself, be your honest self and deliver the playwright's lines, you know, you know, deliver the playwright's vision while being yourself at the same time. And I, I had such a good time teaching that class. It really clarified like my own process for me. Yeah. It's so fucking hard to do. It's so hard. The better the playwright, the more difficult it is to sort of renounce yourself in service of like um, someone else's idea, you know? Mm -hmm. But 
you know, I, I feel like I started to find it in the last like couple of shows. I had a great time. I think the audience <laughs> did too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it was a, they were nice answers. Yeah. Anything you would have, you wish you had known when you were starting out? One thing I wish that I had known is that when you're, if you're ambitious and want to make things happen, I think the following idea is actually not that original now. I think more people know this now than knew it when I was young. But the people who are going to make your career are not the people who are farther along than you in their career. Like, I spent a lot of time like, trying to work with directors and writers who were already famous. Mm. And those are, not, those are not the people that are going to help you. It's the people who are next to you, the people like in your theater company or who are doing your internship with you. Those are the people that you need to connect with the most. It's the people who are with you where you're at. Everyone who I've worked with and who I've had lasting relationships with are people who, who, are, who I already knew before they got big and then brought me along when they were big, mm. basically. So it's like, you, you know, you young actors out there, it's don't waste too much trying, time trying to like get the attention of like your bosses, but try and find the people who you know, who you like, who you think are cool, who are like your age or your station or in your place, in the same place in your career, because those are the people that are gonna, that are gonna be your whole life, really. All right, that was my conversation with Matthew Mayer. If you like the show, please follow us on Instagram, leave us a five-star review, or share the episode with a friend. There are a lot of exciting guests coming up that you're not going to want to miss, so stay tuned. Thanks so much for listening.